Hi, this is Jalen for Dobbs, where tire buying is easy. At GoToDobbs.com, shop brands, sizes, pricing, and our amazing deals. With 40-plus locations, get same-day install. For tires, it's Dobbs. For deals you can use, click on GoToDobbs.com now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Get ready for winter driving at Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers with super deals on tires, including up to $200 on new Goodyear tires, plus oil changes, brakes, batteries, and more. For value and savings, click on GoToDobbs.com today. Two years later, and that still gives me goosebumps. Unbelievable. Welcome back into BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN, along with Brandon Kylie and Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Alex Ferrario. And that voice you heard was the legendary hockey broadcaster, Mike, or better known as Doc Emmerich, who called it a career this past season. And we have the pleasure and honor of getting him on the Brown and Crouppen celebrity line now to uh, talk a little hockey and talk a little life with Doc. Doc, how are you today, sir? I'm doing fine. It's so kind of you to uh, to say all of those things, and it was wonderful to relive that moment in the final minute. I remember in the last old minute or so, our cameras showed the Blues bench, and of course it was obvious they were going to win, and they were all going nuts down there, just pounding one another on the back, and I felt so good for so many people that had weathered the storm that year. But speaking of the storm, I felt pretty good for the people that were watching uh, at Bush Stadium because they got <laughs> drenched that night. And I know that we we had shown some of the downpour and the lightning and the thunder and everything else that was going on. You talk about people sacrificing for the sake of a hockey team. Those people that were watching on the big screen there that got drenched that night uh, certainly did that too. But uh, when you have a smile on your face and you're soaking wet, I guess you don't feel too bad. <laughs> Just goes to show you the diehard fans here in St. Louis, and you know that better than anybody, Doc. And for my money, you are the best broadcaster. I mean, I tell people all the time, uh, when I was in college, you were my influence of trying to get into hockey play-by-play because nobody could get you excited about a hockey game like Doc Emmerich could. And, and I, I, if you don't mind, I'd love for you to tell your story of how you got into hockey because you have an incredible book out uh, it's called Off Mike, How a Kid from Basketball Crazy Indiana Became America's NHL Voice. You have just a, a sensational story of how you got into hockey broadcasting. Well, I'll try to give you a thumbnail of that. Um, uh, I saw my first game, and I think that's how most people get hooked on hockey is they see a game live, as much as we think we can televise it really well. Uh, yeah, we can, but... Seeing a game live really gets in your blood, and that, for me, was uh, December 1960 uh, at age 14 at the Coliseum in Fort Wayne, an IHL game with Muskegon. And at that point, I changed from wanting to be a baseball announcer to being a hockey announcer. Well, how do you get to do that? Um, Part of it was just getting some reps in, 
And that was sitting at the same Coliseum on Wednesday nights by myself in a section and practicing doing a game into a tape recorder. And then I would send those tapes out as audition tapes to professional teams and thought that they would hire me. Well, it didn't happen. So uh, in um, 1967, 1969, 1971, I kept sending these tapes out, which were uh, artificial tapes. They were of legitimate games, but I was doing them to an audience of one myself. And finally, um, after grad school at Miami University, I needed a job, and there was a school in western Pennsylvania that needed someone to teach speech and broadcasting, and um, so I was the guy that uh, got hired to do that. It was 35 miles from Pittsburgh. And so I um, uh, went to the editor of the local evening newspaper, daily newspaper, and said, I'll cover the Penguins for free if you get me a pass. He got me a pass, and the world was open to me of professional hockey as a reporter. That was 50 years ago this past fall. And after uh, a year of doing that, I realized that maybe I'm not going to be a hockey announcer. Maybe I'm going to be a college professor the rest of my life. I better get a doctorate degree because I could earn $600 a year more. So I applied at two schools that had doctoral programs in communications and also had campus stations that broadcast the school's hockey games, Michigan and Bowling Green. When I visited Bowling Green, uh, I, I happened to run into the guy that was in charge of programming the radio station, and he broadcast the first and third periods of the Falcon hockey games, but not the second. They let a student do that. He said that student graduated. If you come here and take the assistantship, you can do the second period. So without an audition, I was going to be on the air at Bowling Green doing hockey. After two years of coursework there toward the doctorate, I had done 18 periods two seasons in a row, and I had an actual air check. I sent all of those out, and one station in Port Huron, Michigan, of a pro team hired me, and that was 47 years ago. So that's how it happened. It was, it's, that's the short version, and it was long enough, wasn't it? <laughs> I loved it. Just an incredible, incredible journey that you've been on, Doc. And here in St. Louis, over the last week or so, we've been looking back to some of your early days in hockey with, of course, the late, great Bobby Plager passing away last week. And I, I did want to ask you about Bobby because you sent out just a fantastic tribute that the Blues shared with all of us here in St. Louis. But I wanted to give you a platform here in St. Louis to kind of share some of your memories of whether it be watching Bobby Plager play or the man that he is today. Uh, what, what are some of the things that come to your mind's eye as you think of the late, great Bobby Plager? Well, uh, primarily the first um, exposure that I had to Bob was with his brother Barkley playing sometimes as a as a uh, as a tandem, but a, but especially with Scotty Bowman's Blues because in the in the early years of the first expansion, it was the Blues in their division and everybody else. The Blues were clearly the power. That's how they got to the Stanley Cup final for the first three years. Uh, because there there was no real uh, there was no real opposition to get to the final within their division, and then uh, the Blackhawks, being who they were, found a way to get over into their division, and that that enabled them to get to the Stanley Cup final in '71. But Bob Plager and Barkley Plager and Noel Picard were all a part of a of a of a Blues team that had physical presence at a time in the 1960s and 70s when you had to have physical presence in hockey to survive so that the 
so that the Red Berensons and the Jimmy Roberts and all the rest of the guys could get by with their kind of game. Bob Plager was, to me, when I first got to meet him in person, was such an antithesis of who I thought he was from watching him play on the ice. Because here was this clever, garrulous, funny guy that was loaded with jokes and one-liners and uh, self-effacing, just a wonderful guy and a wonderful human being and a dedicated blue blood in that he bled St. Louis blue. He was there every time I came into the arena, I would see him. And this was not only in the days of the what was called later the Checker Dome, but also when it was downtown as Sava Center and the various other names that it had, Bob Plager would always be there. And invariably, when I walked up to him or when he walked up to me, I would have a smile on my face because I anticipated something hilarious <laughs> is coming now. And uh, we are going to eventually get to the point where we can start to laugh about Bob again. But it's too sad right now. Yeah, it is too sad. And we spent a lot of time last week, Doc, just talking with so many people about the stories and memories uh, that they have of, of Doc Emmerich. And, you know, it kind of goes full circle because you talked about how your first interaction with Bob and Barkley Plager was at the beginning of the St. Louis Blues uh, with the franchise. And then essentially, as we just played uh, coming out of the commercial break, you calling that Stanley Cup final. You've called plenty of Stanley Cup championships. You've called it for teams who have won back to back teams who have won it for the first time. But I'm curious, Doc, was there anything special or meaningful to you when you got to call and see the Blues win their first Stanley Cup? Well, part of it might be personal in a way in that. I don't cheer for teams, but I do cheer for individuals. And there were several on Boston's team and several on St. Louis's team that I would have been happy for had they won. And one of them was Craig Berube, because I was an employee of the Philadelphia Flyers when Craig was a player. And I saw what he gave of himself on a nightly basis back at a time when you had to have a team that carried, as I was saying earlier about the Blues, you had to have a team that carried two or three policemen. And Craig was uh, one of those policemen for the Flyers at the same time that Dave Brown was and others. The Flyers were notorious for having them, but he was one of them, and that's not easy duty to pull. In one of the publications that I carried and photocopied and shared with him, oh, probably five years ago, was a book of unusual statistics about hockey. And it documented the fact that Craig Berube had more fighting majors than anyone in the history of the NHL. I didn't know that that was true. Uh, even more than, than Dave Tiger Williams or anyone else, he had, he had the most. And here was a guy that I saw come up through the ranks and then become an assistant coach and then become a coach and then... Uh, move on eventually to coaching. And, and I, I remember that during that year asking him about his experience coaching in Peoria and other places that he'd been and to see him come full cycle and be hired in November. And then in the early games that he was coaching, they had some frustrating losses. It wasn't like it was day and night as soon as he took over from Mike Yo, And then to see the crowning achievement of him coaching a Stanley Cup, I felt very good for him. I felt good for the city of St. Louis 
and for some of the people that had been there, like Bob Plager, who cared so much about the team, never got to win themselves, but got to be there and enjoy the fact that, that the city was celebrating a champion that wasn't the Cardinals this time. It was the hockey team. Uh, that made me happy, and especially for Craig. Doc Emmerich is joining us here on 101 ESPN. Doc, I texted a few people last night who cover the Blues or around the Blues to ask them what they would like to know from Doc Emmerich while we have you on. And I I talked with the voice of the Blues, Chris Kerber, and I also talked to Blues reporter Jeremy Rutherford. And JR said, hey, make sure that you ask Doc about the conversation he had with Chris Kerber before that final game, the game seven of the final call. He Apparently, you had a conversation with Kerbs about uh, what that that call would be like for him and what the two of you are potentially going to do for it. Do you remember that conversation? And if so, could you, could you share a little bit with us about what you talked about with Chris Kerber for the final call in that game seven of the Stanley cup? Well, he did a marvelous job because I got to hear it after the fact. Uh, and I I've gotten to hear it a number of times since, um, he and I had discussed the notion uh, as a, a lot of people have, that Al Michaels is a magnificent broadcaster, and I've Al has said so many wonderful things to me over the course of my career uh, because he has he he of course had the most famous hockey call of all, and he also destined the rest of us who would follow into his footsteps, who could never wind up stepping into his shoes properly because the gravity of the games that he was doing the gravity of the nation watching those games and what all of us emotionally were bringing to it could never be equaled in any subsequent situation that I could imagine. But yet all of us feel impelled to make uh, compelled to make some sort of statement at the end of a game. If we have the chance to now, I hope I have the time to clarify this, please. If we have the chance to is to, Uh, is to say that if it's not a one-goal game, because a one-goal game uh, usually involves a goalie being pulled and frantic action around the net. Example, 0-9, Pittsburgh and Detroit. Nick Lidstrom with a puck on his stick in a second and a half to go and a chance to tie the game. You can't come up with something clever or colorful or dramatic to say other than save the Pittsburgh Penguins win the Stanley Cup. However, If you have a situation like Chris had, where it was apparent in the final minute or so that the Blues were going to win the Stanley Cup, then you can prepare something and have it ready to go, and he certainly did. But we talked uh, that day in sort of jest about how how, – because Al had done something that was so spectacular and could not be equaled, the rest of us were destined to follow and always finish (laughs) – in some sort of tie for second place. (laughs) Well said, Doc. Uh, I'm curious, you've watched so much hockey over the years, Doc, and you've seen so many Stanley Cup champions, as I mentioned, back-to-back championships, first-time championships. Right now in St. Louis, they're in a labeled Stanley Cup window where Doug Armstrong put it that about five years, a couple of years ago, that they're in the Stanley Cup window. How hard is it to maintain that championship window in the National Hockey League, in your opinion? Well, it is, and especially, uh, it's a very hard thing, especially last year and especially this year, because last year was a a four-and-a-half-month separation from the pause to the resumption, and this year 
It is an incredibly compressed schedule, even though it's a short one. And it is the kind of schedule that takes its toll physically on teams. Barbashev, Pareto, Sunquist, McEachern, Gunnarsson. Wouldn't you love to have those five guys going to war with you into Denver? I mean, it, it yeah. would sure make the playing field a little easier. All the teams are going to have this, and it, it, it is not going to necessarily. Uh, it, it probably means that the Stanley Cup this year is going to be more of a test of endurance than it's been before, uh, unless you go back to last fall when it was really a test <laughs> of endurance and getting people compressed into, ten, into five rounds and ten weeks of playoffs. Uh, from really late July, I guess, into uh, the end of September. So these two years are not indicative probably as much uh, of uh, of what you can really provide because there there is a carnage factor that is taken to another level because of the complexity of the scheduling and because of the pandemic and the effect that it's had on all the teams. Uh, it's It's quite noble that all the teams continue to – to have very few pandemic delays this year, but there is playing every other day and having the travel thrown in. And of course the blues in Minnesota have more travel than anybody because of the division that they're in. Uh, uh, they, it's, it's just difficult. It's just hard. And I know the fan population is understanding, but you still want to see them win. And lately they haven't, but there's still some time left in the season. Doc, is there a theme that you've seen over the years for the teams that are able to keep that Stanley Cup window open? Because that's going to be the next question for the Blues. This year, last year, obviously, it's different. It's difficult to be able to evaluate them with a clear mind. But in general, for the teams that you've seen over the years that have kept that Stanley Cup window open, is there something that comes to mind as a theme or a through line for those teams? Yeah, well, you wind up, certainly you reward your star players with big contracts because you have to to keep them because of free agency being so prominent. Your star players tend to be older. They tend to be the guys that can go somewhere when their contracts are up, so you got to keep them. And uh, an example of that you see uh, north of you now um, in Chicago. And so you have to develop your guys, and, and developing players is key. And so many of the Blues that won the Stanley Cup were developed from within. And so a key is developing and continuing to have that pipeline of players that are coming in uh, from your own organization because those are the guys that are going to be less expensive to bring in and to have continuing, uh, continually going into your lineup so that you can remain uh, under the salary cap, which you have to do to be able to, to put a lineup out there. So I think that's probably the common theme, and the Blues have been very good at doing that. Uh, the one thing you can't factor into all of this is injuries, and that's what they have right now. Doc, I know we've talked a ton of hockey with you, but I, I have to get into to baseball with you because uh -huh. baseball season is about to start up. And I guess my first one for you is, have you come to terms yet with what the season is going to be with your uh, with your favorite Pittsburgh Pirates? No. <laughs> How's that? No, uh, Eddie Olchek and I are, are, are great friends, but I'm sure that we'll probably have a wager on the first series this weekend at Wrigley Field, and I'm sure I'll lose it. Uh, because uh, I, I was just reminding him that, uh, that the uh, Pirates payroll is, uh, is less than three of his players <laughs> added together. 
<laughs> and and those and and only one of them was a pitcher uh, of the three. And so you know it. it the Cardinals are the Cardinals to me, along with the Dodgers in the National League, have been the most consistent team through history in terms of being of rewarding their fans with wins, maybe not World Series championships, but with winning teams on a regular basis each year. You think back through the gas house gang and, and into the fifties and the sixties, the Cardinals were good. And and the Dodgers have been the same way. Not always the Giants and not always the teams that came out of Milwaukee uh, and then eventually Atlanta. There have been some down years. But those two franchises in the National League have been consistently good and consistently rewarding their fans with good years. And I can't say that with my team. But uh, I don't want to, um, at a holy time of year, uh, make this kind of comparison, but it to me, it's very much like uh, the faith decision I made a long time ago. My baseball team doesn't change despite any kind of difficulty I go through. Uh, these these baseball teams uh, are important to me, and my pirates are, and maybe it's like Jerry Seinfeld said, maybe I am cheering for the uniform, uh, but I my team is 0-0, and they haven't lost since last fall. <laughs> So I'm okay. Well said. Doc, as a bit of a follow-up to that, as a Pirates fan yourself, do you have a favorite or a most hated Cardinal over the years that you've gone up against? No. No, the Cardinals were always uh, so superior that you recognize that. (laughs) And so I didn't dislike any of the Cardinals. I always found, and and I, I... When Eddie Olchek and I were in St. Louis, the last trip that I made in, uh, during the playoffs, of all things, the Mad Hungarian was at the restaurant where we were having dinner. And I think he may have been a greeter there. I'm not sure. But Al Hrabowski was there. And we we both were sort of in awe of him. And I kind of wanted to go up and say hello, but I didn't. But I was I was really impressed the fact that that I didn't know that much about him after he retired, but he was staying around St. Louis and he was in the restaurant where we were that night. And he wasn't a hated figure, but he was certainly a dramatic figure uh, when he came in in relief. One of my favorite people to know is Kent Tocolvi, who was on the mound the last time my boys won a World Series, 1979 in Baltimore. And Kent will come to Penguins games wearing a Penguins jersey Usually it has the number of a goaltender on the back. And he maintains that closers and goaltenders are very much alike. (laughs) Doc, the final question that I have for you here in St. Louis, that 2019 Stanley Cup run, as you can probably imagine, is it's almost like a, a city holiday now. We're going to remember that we're going to celebrate it every year from here on out. What was your favorite memory from that run, whether it be the the end of that game or here in St. Louis? A lot of people will point to the parade down market as the, as their um, favorite memory. What was your favorite memory from that run here in St. Louis? It was that shot of the bench that I mentioned earlier with a minute to go and all of the celebrating that was going on at the bench because the other guys had to play the rest of the game out the last 60 seconds or so. But it was that, boys, we finally made it. We made it, and the franchise, I know it goes back to 67, but here we are 
we're going to win the Stanley Cup. And the anticipation of those last seconds for them and all they sacrificed, and of course they were out of it. In November, they had no shot. And the story, the storybook finish that they had after they were totally out of it, that was what I'll remember, was that ceiling shot at TD Garden that we had of the bench, that long end zone shot of the bench celebrating before the game was over. That's what I'll remember. Well, uh, I'll I'll never forget your call on that either, Doc. It was an incredible call, and this has been an incredible conversation. Thank you so much for taking some time and joining us this ad this afternoon. We love getting the chance to chat with you, and uh, hope retirement is going well. And we hope to uh, get to to hear you on some calls sooner or later. Thank you so much, and your energy is infectious. You've gotten me revved up to 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 watch a hockey game tonight. I thank you for this call, and, and very much I thank the fans in St. Louis for the memories they've given me. Thank you so much, Doc. Enjoy the rest of the day, and we look forward to talking with you again soon. Good, thanks. Take care. Take care. Absolutely. That is Doc Emmerich, the one and only, called five Olympic games for NBC. He called 22 Stanley Cup finals on TV. By the way, you can find his book, Off Mike, that Alex yeah. referenced earlier, how a kid from a baseball-crazy Indiana became America's NHL voice. It is on Amazon or wherever books are sold. One of the the yeah. best to do it and uh the voice of hockey uh, I'm, I'm smiling ear from ear like my jaw hurts this entire conversation but anytime you get the chance to talk with him i, I mean there's so many different aspects of it the voice the now i mean this man has knowledge from back in 1960 like i can't remember what i did last night and he this watched man watched bobby plager he watched <laughs> bobby plager i mean he has gone through he watched the the Mar- no, he called the Martin Brodeur run in New Jersey. He was a part of that Pittsburgh paint. Like, he was a part of hockey history. I mean, there's nobody better to do it. And, you know, I understand where he comes from. Al Michaels has the saying in hockey. You know, do you believe in miracles? Yes. But Doc Emmerich will and always be will be the voice of hockey for me. He's amazing and uh, hugely appreciative of him for giving us so much time today. Uh, We are going to take a little bit of a break longer than normal. We apologize, but I hope you guys are okay with that since we, you know, had Doc Emmerich on the show. Uh, I did ask him about Chris Kerber's final call for that Stanley Cup run, and uh, he said he loved it. Before we get to Jack Flaherty and why we are lower on him seemingly than the national media. Let's go ahead and take a listen to that final call from Chris Kerber as we go to break here on 101 ESPN. A team that was in last place on January 3rd. The players on the bench are bouncing up. History will be made tonight in Boston. 15 seconds to go as Shen blocks a puck to the corner. 10 seconds remaining. Get up, St. Louis. Get on your feet. Raise them high. Five seconds to go, and the time winds down. They did it. It's over. The game is over. The series is over. The wait is over. And the St. Louis Blues are the Stanley Cup champions for the first time in franchise history.